Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. I am Scott Powell. And I'm Father Peter Musset, and we have had our hobo breakfast and are ready to go. Father Peter has mastered the art of making brisket. My my sister turned me Mm. on to this technology called sous vide, and I think that means under vacuum in French. Sous vide. Vide. I'll, 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 I don't really yeah, know French. I don't know. I don't even. I don't pronounce French or anything. But um, man, it was like seven. <laughs> pronounce it, dude. If okay, you look at French and then you try to pronounce it, and it's totally different. It's That's fair. like you're like, is this the same words? Because it's a romance language. See? There you go. And you got like, it. But that you nailed it. Yeah, I mean, I can pronounce fake French. No, but you did. But you had the pronunciation, which is the whole point of this conversation. <laughs> yeah, you got it. You got the dialect. Exactly. You, got, you got it. <laughs> Sorry it? to all you French people who yeah. are like, oh, uh, the blue. <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So um, anyway, brisket, brisket, and uh, real good. Yeah, brisket is real good. And <laughs> so I learned how to do to that. So you guys, what's super exciting is that we're in the 17th Sunday in ordinary time. We are. So we're more than we're past the halfway. Point. Is that right? Um, that would make sense to me. To Advent, you said something about that last week. Oh. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, we're we're deep in the weeds of ordinary time, one might say. Yes. Or, or or to put it in, in not last week's parable, but this week's parable, we're deep in the fishes. Deep oh. in the loaves and the fishes. No, not the loaves and the fishes, just the fishes. Oh, okay. Did you read the gospel? Did you read? Dude, come I on. usually ask you that right before I the podcast. S- it's our, like our it's our. <laughs> It's, it's our doxology that we go through. <laughs> Dude, I will sell all of everything for the Pearl of Great Price, bro. Oh, good for you. That's, so that's a yes. Yeah. All right. Well, our first reading on this lovely 17th Sunday in Ordinary Time is from the book of First Kings, chapter 3, verse 5, and then jumping to verse 7 through 12. Um, Can I just say, while you do that, yeah. Um, these I have zero memory of doing these readings in a podcast at any point in the past, which doesn't necessarily make sense. I just don't remember. Um, and I think in my I, I kind of agonized over these readings. I think these are some of the most theologically complex um, stitching together of readings that we've seen yet. Well, at least in my experience of trying to dig through this this stuff. Well, yeah, I, I was actually looking at this, and I don't remember going through these myself. But which I know it's been it would have been three or seven years, but I just I have no memory of talking about these together. And 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 there's a couple of links that I found that that are, are tr- almost making sense to me. And I think I need you to help me. Like I'm kind of in the same them. boat. I've got some things that kind of tie together. Right. I mean, the theme for me is love. <laughs> no, it, it really is, but not in the in the sappy sense. In a, in a, <laughs> for real, you know, trust me, dude. Anytime you say that, it's just it's, yeah, I know. it's just it. So okay, know, then our our responsorial psalm is Psalm one nineteen, uh, verses fifty seven, seventy two, seventy six, seventy seven, one twenty seven, one twenty eight, one twenty nine, and one thirty. Our second reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, which is um, Paul's concluding thought on the long discourse of groanings that he's been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so and, and this one's not complicated at all, especially for our Protestant brothers and sisters. Are you being sarcastic? Yes. Okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. It's, like, it's double predestination, which has like alienated us from our Protestant brothers and sisters for years. and. So it's right, it's right. really not easy to go through. So then um, 
our gospel. I think it's easier than it seems, but we'll but, talk about I mean, that's more a, on that more, that's, more soon. That's because you're able to go at it from the seams. Okay. I, I <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to go good. Yeah. Our uh, gospel is I, That's me. The, uh, it's I my know. turn. Well, you weren't doing it. I was doing it. I was Somebody just trying should. to get at you. And, and you and you like went soft on me, and then I didn't know what to do. No, I, I responded as I expected you wanted me to. <laughs> just trying to follow the script here. <laughs> Our longer form is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. Which is not that much longer. No, the, the other one is 44 to 46. So it's Honest like, to goodness. Do you just, if, just, <laughs> if you can't go for the long form. I can only do two verses today. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Wow! Oh, just rally, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. Uh, okay, man. I don't know why that tickles me. That, that yeah, voice, it really did. That voice of you. Um, it there, really did. There's a, my biblical study section is right there. Where is your catechism of the Catholic Church? Oh, there it is. Great. This is going to come into play in a, in a second. Okay. So yeah, I'm wondering. I mean. Grabbing the paper version of the catechism always feels like it's a rich experience. I, I like it. I don't like electronic versions of things. I think you know that about me. I know that. I could have easily pulled it up on my little screen, but <laughs> I'd, I'd rather have the full experience of the, of the text. But I digress. So First Kings, we are talking about the beginning of the story of a guy named Solomon. And this is th- this passage that we get this week is actually one of the most famous passages in the Bible because it's the passage where Solomon, who is the son of David, becomes king of Israel. Okay. And it's where God. Well, we'll just we'll just start at the beginning. So God comes to Solomon. So Solomon's a fresh king. He's young. He did not uh, take on the throne um, without some drama. If you remember the story, so there was David, King David, the great King David. His father was on his deathbed. And basically a number of David's other sons were all basically trying to vie for the for the crown and trying to get the kingdom and trying to usurp it and stage coups and overthrow David in his old age. There was so much political intrigue around who was going to take over after David's death that the fact that Solomon actually makes it to the throne, which is what he was he was supposed to do, is kind of miraculous in and of itself. And there was this whole it's there's so much intrigue around all these other sons that David had and all their vying and political, you know, um, maneuvering to try to get the throne. But Solomon is the one that David wants on the throne. He's the one that that that, uh, that David anoints. Um, Bathsheba goes to bat for him, his mother, which, all sorts of stuff. Which is actually why it's really, it's it's actually quite significant where Solomon goes to offer worship then. Yes, absolutely. Tell me more about Well, <laughs> because what, totally. what happens, <laughs> totally, I totally Tell me agree. more. <laughs> why don't you explain it? Why I don't could you, explain ex- it, but why don't you? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we're in, in uh, first, first Kings 3, you know, in, uh-huh. in 3. So Gibeon... Okay. Gibeon, because I, I was like, I, why did he go specifically to Gibeon? And it gives a little explanation in the text to offer these thousand, yeah. these thousand things. Well, it, what, what it is, is, is it's actually the place of Harisham, Her, what's its name? Um, it's the place of death mm. of Israel, Jacob. Mm. Oh yes, right, right, right. Right. And in in and at this place he says I want to be buried here, but what he does is he goes through the list of his 12 sons and talks about their their Jacob. Jacob. Yeah, yeah. yeah he talk Jacob's sons, he goes and he talks about their advantages and their disadvantages of of all of the political intrigue that's actually gone on with the family to yeah. get them to this point. Yeah. And right. so he so in yes. in a real way what he's doing is he's symbolizing 
by going up to this specific place that he wants to honor Israel. Yeah, but even the story of Gibeon, there's there's a darkness to it. The Gibeonites were the ones who tricked Israel and and Joshua back in the time of Joshua into making this political alliance with them, this treaty. Um, so it, it, there's a darkness to it as well. And then eventually it was given over to Benjamin to the, the as their tribal Private, land. Yeah. But but it it's it's significant because it recounts a deep vast, long story of the people of God up to this point, like you're saying, right. really, um, that's not always been bright. That's not always been perfect and pleasant, right? There's, right. there's darkness to it that's intermingled throughout here. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll, I want to come back to that specific point. With in a that minute. land. With that particular land, absolutely, that specific place. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's that's really yeah. <laughs> the one that yeah, when, yeah, I, no. when I was looking, I was like, okay, like, um, you know, what's... I wasn't. My mind didn't even go there. I wasn't. That, which is that. That actually is. Uh, it's actually pretty powerful yeah. to put that as the context for what happens next. Yes. So it says the the Lord appeared to Solomon at night in a dream after he has sort of offered himself to God in service. Solomon is one of the more tragic figures in the Old Testament, partially because of how brightly he begins his his uh, royal career as king. Um, and how darkly and how deeply he falls. It's because, eventually, of the sin of Solomon and his disobedience to what God wants of his kings that the whole kingdom will fall into civil war and will be divided and will be lost. It doesn't happen under the reign of Solomon. It happens under the reign of his son. But Solomon is told by God that because of your deep sin, your son is going to have the kingdom taken from him. Mm. And it's going to be split, and he causes the divide. So... Um, but that 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 ties in into what he prays here. So the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream early on in his kingship, and he says, "Ask something of me, and I'll give it to you. I, you are my servant. You are my representative on earth. I want people to look to the King of Israel and see an icon of me and see an image of of my kingship over the world. So in that light, I want you to ask something of me, and I want to give it to you. I want to be your father. It's it's through Solomon." that the language of the kings of Israel being called the sons of God, because God is their father in a particular way and they're his son, that's, it's through Solomon that that tradition really comes about, which I think is a subtle way of God preparing the whole world for his actual son to come and become the king of Israel. Mm. So the tradition of calling the king the son of God comes in Solomon, because God wants this filial relationship to him. And so Solomon says, oh, Lord, my God, you have made me your servant, the king, to succeed my father, David. But I'm a youth. I'm young. I'm, I'm nobody. And I don't know how to act. I still have so much to learn. It's so I, funny because the, the phrase is like, I don't know how to go in and come out. Like, he, he's like, I don't know my right elbow right, from my left elbow. Yeah, I don't is, know is, what's is, up and what's down. I don't. Right. And it's this funny way of saying it. It's like, I don't know how to act. It's like such a sanitized version of like. <laughs> of, of what the phrase really is. Yeah, you're right, actually, which is kind of beautiful. Like, I don't know anything. I don't right. know what I'm doing. <laughs> right, like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a kid, and I have no idea what I'm doing, which is what it translates to me. Which is the, I would argue, the proper disposition for a leader of the people of God. Amen. Because there's the humility of saying, I don't know. And if it's only when we say, I don't know what I'm doing, that we can ask God to guide us, right. which is what he does. He says, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I serve you in the midst of a people whom you have chosen. They're so vast, they can't be numbered or counted. This responsibility is great and vast and heavy on my shoulders. 
And it's in the recognition of that that his holiness begins to come out, right? So give to your servant, therefore, an understanding heart to judge your people, to distinguish right from wrong, for who is able to govern this this vast people of yours. So this is the moment where Solomon makes his great request for wisdom. Right. And if people know nothing else about the Old Testament about or about the story of Solomon, most people will remember Solomon for his great wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. And when the, the, the reason I pulled out the catechism is that I think for a lot of us, when we think of the idea of wisdom, we think of a mental thing, right? Being able to think through things properly and prudential stuff, which is true. But if you read carefully what Solomon asks for, he doesn't ask for an understanding mind. He asks for an understanding heart. What's interesting, because the, the literal translation of the word understanding is listening. A li- absolutely. And, and which is, for me, which is what I would say is a reverent heart. Yes. One yes, who, is, who actually makes space to experience what is real. Because listening and understanding is the same activity. Yeah. So in, in Hebrew, this is interesting. There's um, the word for, so I, I think what he's doing is also pulling from the famous Shema prayer, which is probably oh. the most important prayer in all of Israel. The one that it's from Leviticus, right? Or Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Oh, I'm mixing up. But the Deutabides, that's all here, I know. <laughs> Yes. But hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. Therefore, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your all your strength. Um, th- that, that famous prayer, which was the pinnacle prayer of all of Israel. Um, uh, I lost my... Oh, yeah, and understand, listening, Shema. And so in Hebrew, Shema means both... There's no distinqui- distinguishing linguistically between to listen and to obey, Right. Right. So the idea is, how do you know, you know, if I ask my my kids to take out the trash, how do I know that they have heard me and actually heard me? Well, if they take out the trash, right, if they do what I've asked, they can hear me and not actually do what I've asked. But the way I know that they've actually really heard is if they do it. And so in Hebrew, there's no distinguishing. So hear, O Israel, but also obey, O Israel. The Lord is your God. The Lord is one. And so give the Lord your God your whole heart and your whole uh, strength and your um, all your mind, all your heart, your soul, and your strength. That's what uh, what the Old Testament says. Jesus adds mind later on, partially because I think the the understanding um, is lost in Israel. But the the reason I want to dwell on the heart, the word levav, l e v a v, it's one of the most repeated terms in the whole Old Testament, which is funny to me because when people think about, it's actually um, one of the most used words in the Book of Deuteronomy. Which I think is interesting because when a lot of people think of the Old Testament in a book like Deuteronomy, they think of laws, rules, hardships, God's always mad. But the the idea of the heart being what God wants most, first and foremost from us, is on every other line mm. of the Old Testament. And so when Solomon prays, he says, I don't don't just give me a really smart mind. I think that's sometimes how we reduce wisdom. He says, I want a heart that listens and a heart that obeys. And I just have to read very quickly. The the Catechism of the Catholic Church has one of the most beautiful explanations of what the ancient Hebrew idea of the heart is in any writing that I have ever encountered in my life. Um, The Catechism, one thing I just have to say quickly, the Catechism, I love the Catechism and I use it almost daily. The Catechism was by and large a book written by committee. 
And that's okay because it brought together all of these teachings and resources and nuances and all of these documents and things that the church has said about all sorts of things throughout her whole history. And it puts them in this one amazingly compact volume. It's unbelievable. It's kind of miraculous if it, it's written it's, by a committee. Well, I mean, no, it was, though. I mean, JB2 was involved. Ratzinger was huge in the, the compilation of this stuff. But a lot of people wrote a, a bunch of different parts. Um, it's split into four pillars, right? The four major parts of the catechism. All of it was written by groups of people, theologians, bishops, except for part four. Part four was written by one dude, one priest, on a typewriter in Beirut, Lebanon, in a basement with bombs going off or outside his window during a war. And he put out what I think is one of the most brilliant pieces of spirituality that's ever been written. And it, it almost stands apart from the rest of the catechism, which is great and informational and really, really good. Yeah. But the fourth pillar is like a spiritual masterpiece. Mm. Um, Father Thomas Dubay, right? No, uh, no, Carbone, Father Carbone. Carbone. I'm sorry, I'm mixing up those two. Father Dubé. Carbone. Oh, no, not people. Father Thomas Dubay. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Dubé, he's, he's amazing, but he's different. But I got to read what he says about the heart. So I'm just going to read this really quick. It's in paragraph 2562 and then into 63. He says, where does prayer come from? Whether prayer is expressed in words or gestures, it's the whole man who prays. But in naming the source of prayer, scriptures speak sometimes about the soul, sometimes about the spirit, but most often the heart. More than 1,000 times the heart is mentioned. So according to the scripture, it's the heart that prays. And so if our heart is far from God, our words and prayer are in vain. And this is what I want to get to. What is the heart? So when we think of heart in our modern culture, we think of the seat of our emotions, right? We think of the Hallmark Channel. We think of the warm fuzzies we get from Christmas carols, right? Our heart is like this emotional thing. That's what we've made it. Heart Partially, emoji. Right? But that's how we think of the heart. But the, the um, Semitic, the Hebrew understanding of heart says this. It says, the heart is the dwelling place where I am, where I live. According to the Semitic or the biblical expression, the heart is the place to which I withdraw. The heart is our hidden center beyond the grasp of our reason and of others. Only the spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart is the place of decision deeper than our psychic drives. It's the place of truth where we choose life or death. It's the place of encounter because as image of God, we live in relation. It is the place of the covenant which is very different than the kind of over-emotionalism that we think of when we think of the heart. So when Solomon says, God, I want a listening and obeying heart, he says, I want the deepest center of who I am to be centered on deciding for you every single day in choosing to follow you in the deepest drives of my being to choose life mm -hmm. over death, right. to choose you over not you, and to make that the power of my, maybe the will is maybe closer in our understanding to what the Hebrews understood as the heart. So when Solomon prays for this, I just want to emphasize how profound the prayer that he asks for is. And then God responds. He says, look, you didn't ask for riches or a long life or, you know, all this well, other stuff that well, most people would ask for. Well, but we have to remember, where is he asking this? Gibeon. In a dream. Oh, I guess. Yeah, you're right. He's, yeah, I didn't, I didn't consider that. Wait, okay. Wait, okay. Wait, so he's me. in it. This whole dialogue is taking place within a dream. Within his heart, perhaps, and which, deep inside. Which is why, like, there's a oh, certain sense of an, even, about that. of an even purer expression of the heart. Because huh. in the in the dream, like, like sometimes in the dream, everything's, like, weird. But sometimes, 
like like in the in there's like kind of pure spiritual dreams there's something about the heart that mm. is is revealed that is mm. directly to the heart it's like how many conversations do i have in my life where what i'm actually trying to do is i'm trying to help people to get in touch with their heart again yeah. with their hidden agendas yeah, with yeah. the the movements that, that that in some ways we've stacked a bunch of you know things and and mm. we're kind of trying to get to the inception version of the little safe Absolutely. we're trying to yeah, go right. and unlock the safe of the heart to say what really is there so that we can just have have a place of encounter a place of in covenant i mean goodness yeah, right. i want to i actually really want to meditate that on on that definition of the heart and the holy isn't hour that again. amazing it's isn't just it beautiful. so great which the the there is the beauty of this and the beauty of what Solomon is asking for and like you said the context in which he's asking for it but then there's the rest of the story right. and what scripture sort of depends on us for especially the book of first kings was written probably far after Solomon's life mm. and so when the author writes these words it's presuming on the audience that you're going to read this and say wow that's really beautiful Oh, wait a second. I know how that story turned out, though. And I know how Solomon eventually turned. And I know that although he prayed and begged God for this listening and obeying heart, he ends up disobeying everything that God asked of the kings. There's a, a line in, in Deuteronomy in chapter 17. It basically gives instructions on all the things that the future king should never do. And it describes the, the three W's. Do you remember this? When you see it, Deuteronomy says, eventually, Israel, when you guys have a king, when you settle the promised land and you eventually have a king to represent you, always beware that your king never do these three things. And I always <laughs> call it the three W's. Never acquire too many wives. Right, never acquire a too much wealth for right, himself. Right. And never acquire too much weaponry, literally war horses. And what it means by that is specifically offensive Def, uh, offensive warfare that you can defend yourself. Israel is a nation like any other nation, but your job is not to go and conquer the world. Your job is to be the light of God on earth. And so as you follow the story of Solomon, eventually he gets 600 something, hundreds of wives and concubines because he puts his trust in all sorts of other nations and alliances and powers who are not God. So he has tons of wives. He gets tons of wealth. There are storehouses he had it's like scrooge mcduck remember the money bin he had yep. that's what solomon has he has huge money bins of all of his money and his wealth from his overtaxation and then he has huge warehouses storehouses for all of his war horses on the plains of megiddo har megiddon which, oh, which is outside armageddon. of Jews, which is armageddon and so you can literally watch through this story so if you're reading this if you're the uh, one of the, the the readers of this, you're like, oh my gosh, how beautiful this is. But oh my gosh, how painful if we remember the whole course of how this story goes. That we see the intent, we see what we're supposed to do, but then Solomon gets this power and these alliances and all this stuff, and his heart becomes the opposite. His levav gets turned toward all the things that he asked God not to have him do. Right. And the tragedy of the story is the weight of it. Not just, oh, what a nice, beautiful thought. What a neat, beautiful reflection. But the reflection ought to be the pain of seeing what we ought to do and not feeling like we can do it. And seeing how, no, this is what the people of God are supposed to look like. But, oh my gosh, how far we've fallen from that. Well, Which doesn't take away from the ideal but it shows us that we don't always live up to the ideal. Well, and this also shows that 
even if you score in grace, yeah. you're like, woohoo, you got the gifts of healing and all you you can move mountains. You can And Solomon does that for a while. Remember, people come to him from all over the world for wisdom to find out about God. So but, there's a time that's like, well, this is really cooking. Right. Uh, but what happens is we were talking last week about temerity, yes, about right. arrogance, yes, yes. and that what happens is that there's a certain mm. moment in which you presume upon the Lord in the giftedness that he has previously poured out, and Absolutely. you don't remain in, in humility yeah. in relationship yeah. to the gifts that have been given to you. Absolutely. And and so you you begin to presume that you are the source and origin of the gift. Absolutely. Rather than to, like, this is why, how much money do we need that we don't have to trust God? It's obvious Absolutely. that there's no level of money that you can have according. I mean, Harmageddon. So you're saying I'm not getting a raise. You're not getting a raise. <laughs> 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 Sorry. You are reading kidding. my on. mind. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but it, there's there's nothing that we can mm. do. There's no amount of skilled things, no amount right. of interior, exterior right. that if you let mm. your heart, if your lavav gets transformed, the center of being and the center of decision and center of covenant, if that place starts to get another agenda, then there's no amount of external realities that can transform that, and except for the the grace of God, which then can move our hearts if we're open to it. The thing that kind of haunts me about Solomon's story is that what seems, I mean, human beings are complex, what seems to partially do that to Solomon is the gift that God gave him. Solomon lets the gift that he was given by God actually be part of what goes to his head to stop. For, so it's the idea that, you know, sometimes the holier we get or the, the more recognition we get for doing holy things, perhaps, or, you know, the more successful our churches are, the more busting at the seams our congregations might be, the more listeners the podcast gets, what, you know, whatever it is, sometimes those things can be the cause of pulling our levav far from what God wants. And it's because he was supremely gifted with a very holy good thing right. that he is then pulled in the wrong direction. And that's Spiritual the, success is da- can be dangerous. Well, and that's exactly Satan's plan. Exactly right. And how many, right. any saint that's digging in on spiritual theology is saying how... Yeah. How dangerous, it is, how dangerous it is to reach the lofty heights of prayer in relationship with God because Satan's manipulations right. are good. Yes, right. He knows how to get in there, and that's why, right. that's why we stay super close and humble. Right. And otherwise, you know, like, and that, that's why I think in the psalm, yeah. what, what, ha- what happens <sighs> is he says, How I love your law, Lord. I study it all day long. That, that like... Like there's something that's just right on and true if we allow our heart to be discovering like that initial inspiration of Solomon. Yes, yes. Um, I want to say a bunch of things about the psalm real quick. Hit me up. factually, and yep. then I'll you can you can give it the spiritual dude, spin. Send me a fax, dude. Um, ooh, nice. I like that. Um, first, of, well, I'll get to that in a second. Um, but can psalm- you make the fax noise for me? Uh, the america online i can see my parents computer screen um psalm 119 is by far the did you look at psalm 119 the rest Uh, of it no no only the section we had it is a beast and there's something that just needs to be said about the sheer size of psalm 119 (laughs) okay it is by far so i shouldn't give it for penance do not give it for penance. It's the <laughs> longest psalm in the Psalter, coming in at a whopping. Hold on a second. 
Coming in at a whopping... Oh, for Pete's sake. I had it, and I lost Please, it. Please, for my sake. I know. Coming in at a whopping 176 verses. <laughs> which, you're like, wow, that's a big... We're going to sing a, this song. So this is interesting, though, the fact that you say that. It's believed, nobody's sure... It's believed that this is one of the only psalms that was actually originally written as written. Not that wasn't originally composed as a song or sung in a liturgical context, but that it was actually written down, partially because it's so cumbersome and long. Um, It's an acrostic in the sense that, you know, every... It hurts you if it spill it on your body? Exactly right. But what? (laughs) Caustic? Acoustic. I know, acrostic meaning that it goes from A to Z. Right, or LF to Tau um, in Hebrew. <laughs> but so it's so there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So every stanza has eight lines for each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So, I mean, it's a beast. And what a lot have said about this, and, and it's a long reflection on the word of God. Okay. It's a long reflection on his law, his Torah, his commands, his and word. Th- when you, we say, I study it all day long, meaning that you do one. <laughs> means you need to study this all day long to get through. <laughs> yeah. But it's also so, cumbersome's not the right word, but there's so much of it. What it speaks about is actually pedagogically present in the way that it's written. Because it requires, like... The fact that the it's not simply for, you know, the sophistication of the poetry style that the the author put together, you know, these eight series of each of the 22 letters of the alphabet in this way, but it requires like real hard work. And I tried to push my way through this and it, it it's daunting and it's hard. And you got to go back and be like, wait, what did I just what, where am I? It takes actual hard, real work to get through Psalm 119. It's not like one of those ones you just give for penance that's just a few verses and like, oh, I have nice, happy, warm feelies after reading this. You know what I mean? <laughs> and But the, it, it, it is what it suggests. So it's sacramental in the sense that it's reflecting on the word of God, but it's long and it's complicated and there's ups and there's downs. And it comes back, our, our refrain, right, from 97, 97 verses in, <laughs> is saying, Lord, I love your commands. And if we go on our understanding of what love and the heart mean from the first reading, it's not just, oh, I get warm, fuzzy feelings from your commands. It says, Lord, I want to listen to your commands. I want my heart to hear what you say and respond rightly in my will, in my deepest core of my being. But in order to do that, I actually have to take in the long game of what your word is. To know your commands and to love your commands in the true sense of love, I have to put in the hard work of seeing a story like Solomon, which is more than just, oh, this guy prayed for wisdom. How nice. He got it. Cool. But that sometimes the greatness of our lives can actually lead to these deep sins. And I see the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs and the ways in which he tries to follow God's word and love his commandments, but then rejects the commandments. And I don't want to be like that. But loving the Lord's word, his commandments, his Torah, requires what Psalm 119 is, which is going through the long story and trying to understand and trying to wrap our minds around and put ourselves in the narrative to see, yeah, this is hard and difficult, but I will decide, I will choose in my levav, in my deepest part of my being, that I want to follow and to listen and to obey you. Does that make sense? So Psalm 119, man, it's packs a punch today. 
Right. And, and it's actually speaking towards the, the like the intentions and the difficulties that then Solomon faced. Because he yes. says the law yes. of your mouth is more precious to me than heaps of silver and gold. Which is which you can't not think of. So I mean, if you're deep in the story, right. your mind would go to Solomon. You're like, oh, right, <laughs> right. Show me your compassion that I may live. And like the yeah. revelation of your words sheds light and gives understanding to the simple. It's also that this like it's also stands a little bit in the face of Solomon. Solomon did not see himself as simple. No, he didn't. And and right. and, and and because of this arrogance that actually took root out of the giftedness that he received. But whereas the, what we're talking about is if we remain in simplicity towards how, how this is, because, I mean, let's be honest, our conversations are not simple, Scott. Right. We, right. We, like, uh, though I do consider you simple. Thanks, man. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> but you consider me simple. No, I don't. I know. I'm really weirdly complex. But, <laughs> but, but this is the thing is that... Is simple that, is one word I would not use. Yeah, but, but both of us, I would say, actually started this journey in simplicity of heart. Yeah, absolutely. And sim the simplicity of heart that. means that I have responded to the the Lord in front of me, and I have one desire, and that is like this song, you know, to live in your house. Um, it better yeah. is one day in your house. I love that song. Me too. Than than anything else, and that's that's that simplicity yeah. of heart. You just say like, yeah, right. I know this is right, and right. then from that understanding mm. starts to build, and we get the complex full picture of what it actually means over time to follow after the Lord. And, uh, and it deepens year after year for the wise who have, who are willing to encounter this word and be transformed because it's, it's complex. It is really, it's a, it's a butt kicker. Which is what, I mean, if you follow his prayer closely, really, that's what Solomon was praying. He's saying, I'm very small. I'm young. I don't know what's going on. This is really complex. Your people are vast. There's so many of them. This Can't whole, count them. This whole kingdom is so complex. What you have manifested on this earth is so much bigger than me. And you get the sense that that's precisely what he loses as his life goes on. No, I'm bigger than this. I'm the king, for Pete's sake. You know what I mean? Yep. But it's like you said, it's the recognition of the complexity of the story that we are called into that gives us the freedom to actually live it out. Yep. But that's what he loses too. But he had it for a moment. There was a moment he had that understanding. I am small, God's big. And 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 out of that he says I know that all things work for the good of those who love God. Yes. It's right, it's like right, all, it's almost yeah. like you can hear this refrain Wait, going are you talking about Paul? Yeah. Oh, you jumped to Paul just like that. Right, because because Paul is <laughs> echoing the same refrain. Absolutely. Of of like this deep understanding. Now, to say that I believe that everything works for the good of those who love God coming from Paul is a huge expression because that man, I mean, he, he'll get, he'll go gangster rapper on you. He's like, I've been shot. I've been stabbed. I've been shipwrecked. Everybody, Pamphylia, Phrygia, what's up? All my people, like he's seen it all. And he's like, and I believe that's true. And, 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 and he's whittled back he down. He hasn't been and stabbed as far as I know, but, I or shot. He, but, he, uh, so he, that aside. I, it was a paraphrase. <laughs> no, no, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, with you, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, but, yeah. But I, but, yeah, he's it's a foot. I gave a footnote. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um that oh there's so much to say about romans 8 um this is the conclusion of paul's triple groaning theology remember so last week we talked about how paul expressed the triple groan right so it, if it's and, and the triple groan groan stands for um puns 
metaphors oh and gosh. similes. Dad jokes. <laughs> dad jokes. I was trying to come up with dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, he says um, all of creation is groaning out in travail, longing for the salvation that Jesus has actually brought in the world, longing for us to live it out. Yes. So the whole world is longing for us to act as though what Jesus did actually happened in our lives. We know that Jesus trampled down death by death. He has conquered sin. He has conquered evil. The world, even creation itself, even the world of nature is waiting for us to act like that's true. Mm. The one group of people who have access to the grace in which we stand to act as though we actually believe what we claim to believe. Jesus is Lord over the world because we act as though, and this has been my mantra lately. I gave this in an online talk I gave last night. Um, we, we act, we honestly, Christians, you and me, we act as though we honestly don't know the end of this story. We act as though we don't know if good or evil is going to win out in the end, don't we? Especially this, these days. Oh, my goodness. That's We're like, so I don't true. know if evil's going to win in the end of this. We don't know the end of the movie. We know the end of the movie, right? We know how this one ends. And so creation is groaning out saying, you guys know what you're supposed to do. Do it. Right. But then if we understand our role and our job, then Paul says the church ought to groan and say, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know how to pray. I don't even know what to ask for. Like Solomon actually knew what to ask for. So that's what we talked about last week, right? So because we don't know what to do about this huge, profound calling we have as sons and daughters of God to live as light in a world shrouded in darkness, the spirit groans on our behalf using the words that we don't even have because mm. we don't know how to pray as we ought. We don't know how to act and move forward as we ought. And so after saying all of that, that you should see your mission and you should quite frankly be floored by it like Solomon was. It's too big. It's too, there's too many people to count. This kingdom's too great. The challenge of living out the salvation of Jesus Christ in a world who has given itself over to sin should actually strike us as a bit too much for us. Mm. So we should groan out and say, God, you're going to have to help me. And the spirit will kick in, he says, and it will groan in ways we don't even know how to, and it will empower us. And so that is the context in which Paul concludes his long thought and says, so, brothers and sisters, which I believe it does begin with the day, which is a so or a but, we know that all things work for the good for those who love God. And, and that should strike you as though, like, I don't know if I do, <laughs> right? right? But he just went through that with you. You already have looked at the world and we've already admitted that the church really should be groaning at the weight of her mission. But if we actually understand our smallness and God's bigness, the spirit will kick in for us. So we can know and we can have confidence that all things really do work together for the good, mm. for those who love God. So, which I, I mentioned this in a talk I gave last night, the, and I'm, I was preaching myself more than anybody else of, can we actually, we were talking about this before the podcast, can we get up in the morning and read the news and read the news and say to ourselves, but I know that thing is going to work for the good, for the God who loves us. I, our, 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 one of our favorite passages, the road to Emmaus, right? Where Jesus says to the struggling, unbelieving disciples, was it not necessary right. that all of these things should happen so that I could perform what I wanted to do in the world? And to look at the world and say, man, I have no idea what you're doing, God. There's violence and there's political strife and there's bullying and there's racism and there's violence and there's all sorts of things. But hopeful, I, I, I hope in a God 
who will say to me someday, yeah, Scott, that was ugly and there was a lot of sin there, but was it not necessary that those things happen so that I could create the greatest saints who ever lived in human history in 2021 or whatever it is, right? right? But do we have that kind of faith? Do we have the faith that Paul is actually asking of us to say, yeah, the news is depressing. The Facebook, the reading the comment sections, people are out of their minds. Can those things actually work for the good for those who love God? Because, again, we know how the story ends. And the way that Paul then wraps this up, he says, we're called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? To be the sons and daughters that creation is groaning out in travail, waiting for it to get their act together, to act as though this is real. Because those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who he predestined, he also called. In other words, I think predestined is not as theologically complicated as Martin Luther and the debates all around that have made it. It's simply God says, I actually have a plan for your life. I've destined you to be a saint. Right. I, from the beginning of time, plan that Father Peter Musset becomes Saint Father Peter Musset. And Scott is in and companion or something, you know, <laughs> but that like Psalm 119 is saying, this is long and there is a long game at play here. And there is a long history of what it means to say, I will shema the word of God and I will listen to you and I will obey all through the ups and downs and twists and turns and courses that this long game of a story is going to take, knowing that what Paul just said is that God has had the end, the telos of this in mind from the beginning. He knows how it ends, and you're smack in the middle of the story, but you also know the author of the story, so you can take confidence in that. And the fact that he begins by saying, where does he say it? Um, No, I don't know. I lost it. Oh, those who love God. We know all things work for the good of those who love God. I don't think you can escape the fact that Paul is referencing back to the Shema prayer, which is the greatest prayer like we've talked about in all of Israelite history. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. And if that's true, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your lavav. That's what he's calling all the people of God back to. He's saying, don't forget the beginning of the story. Don't forget this prayer that everything else hinges on. Can you do that? Right. Does that make any sense? It does. It makes a it's, ton it's of a sense. It's a masterful theological um, move that Paul has concluded this long section with. Right. And, and, and in a certain sense, the second half is actually really an unpacking of that all things work for good for those who love God. Even somebody like Solomon, who fell to a profound sin, that can work for the good of those who love God because we can look back on that story and say, oh, I see where this kind of fatal flaw happened. And I see the good that was happening here, but then he chose falsely, but I can actually use a story like that to learn what not to do and how to love God better and actually how to do, make different choices. Right. And, and that like, this is the thing is that the entire history of the church and of Israel is all a bunch of people who fell short. Absolutely. Except for Jesus and except Mary. Except for Jesus and Mary. Yeah. Like that's it. Yeah, that's it. Like, like, and, and that's why right. it, it's not a far fetched thing to say, falling far or falling short, yeah, like right. sin, it, it still yeah. has this crazy power to reveal the profound love of God and that he right. will allow good things to come from it. That's, yeah. I think that that's why people go into this idea of gratitude. You know, you get mm. into the attitude of gratitude to where you, you know, <laughs> noise, <laughs> noise. Um, you know, it's, it's hard when you hear it, but that mm. in a certain sense, what it is, is it's training to attempt to discover this principle at work. Yeah. Yeah, which 
I think you made the perfect segue into the gospel. Wow. What did you just say? Can you repeat that line? Do you have the yeah, the attitude of gratitude is an attempt to make the to allow the principle to discover the principle of God trying to work to that all things work for the good of those who love God. It's trying to make practical. You're training yourself to allow a discovery of that in the attitude of gratitude. A discovery of something that's kind of hard to see. Right. You could almost say it's like a hidden treasure that's not seen by everyone but holds great value. Mm. That is what Jesus is saying in the parables, right? The kingdom of heaven is continuing on this long train in chapter 13 of all the parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. And if a person finds it, he hides it again and out of joy sells everything he has to buy that field. Right. If we can tap into what you just said, that is really hard to see. But if you can discover it and see the paradigm of what makes life worth living, then you should want to give up everything. Right. If if I have access to the grace in which all of creation is groaning out for, that's a secret that nothing else is worth. And I can drop everything. I can sacrifice everything in my life for that. Yes. That's what he's precisely talking about. So in a certain sense, all of these readings have been leading us up to those words. Mm. And Jesus says like this. Yeah. And then, or, or this pearl. Or you the know, pearl of great price. Yeah. You know, and you just, now you actually have this. And yeah, and it's like, uh, it's like it, the third one is, is kind of a weird contrast. No, one, though. but it's perfect because he's like, this is what the kingdom is. This is the secret. This is what the Shema prayer means. This prayer that you have been praying every day of your life. If you're a good and faithful Jew, what it means is these things. It's not just words that you're rattling off because you memorized them when you're a kid, as many of us Catholics are, are prone to doing, right? Right. It's not that. It is the greatest treasure in the world to hear the voice of God, to listen, to obey him, and to give all of our lives back to him because we recognize the movement of the story and the movement of history toward him, toward the final reconciliation of all things. It is like this treasure. It's like this pearl. But... But he says that same kingdom is like a big net thrown in the sea, catching a bunch of fish. Some of them are ugly. Some of them are nasty. Some of them are good. Some of them are tasty. And it's like that. It's like the weeds and the wheat once again. He's like, this is the truth of the kingdom. But as you live in the kingdom, you're going to encounter a whole bunch of Solomons. And you're going to encounter some Davids. And you're going to encounter some people who remind you of the Blessed Mother. It's a total mixed bag. Can you see beyond that mixed bag or that mixed net of fish, some are good, some are bad, to see the truth and the reality of what God is calling every human being back to? Because he has pre, from the beginning of time, destined us for sainthood and for sanctity and for being the children of God that all of creation is groaning out in travail waiting for. Absolutely. So I think it fits perfectly. Right. And... And in, in, in a real profound way for me, the hermeneutic key is Jesus on the cross, the passion and, and death of Jesus. I'm laughing. I'm chuckling just at the last lines of this when, um, oh yeah, I got it. At the last lines, when Jesus says to his disciples at the end of chapter 13, which is all of these crazy wild parables that we've been talking about. Do you, do you guys understand? understand? No, no. This is, this brings us right back to Solomon. Oh, do you oh, I didn't, listen? I didn't think about that. Have you listened to me? Uh, Is your heart open and disposed? Have you heard? Have you heard? And they say, yes. Yes. Which at first glance, I was like, 
Yeah, yeah, right. I know. I normally, normally, but I say like, "Oh, you ain't gonna understand nothing." <laughs> the apostles are pretty clear about when they don't understand stuff, right? And they're pretty honest about we don't have a clue what you're talking about, right. Jesus. They're, they're, but they, here they say, "Yes," yes. and all they say is the simple, "Yes, we've heard." Right. Which now the task lays before them of to okay, unfurl this, to un- unfold this protein, to just like draw this out and like, or simply the second half of the word, "You have shemad." Now can you shema? You've mm. heard. Now can you obey? Mm. Can you do it now? And I wanted to say it's funny. The um, I, listen, listen to this. Um, Jesus says after that that they're like scribes, which if you're just reading the gospel without much context, the scribes are the ones throughout the gospel who are always kind of the bad guys. They're always with the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus and trick him and you know manipulate him and all this stuff. Yeah. And Jesus is like, you guys are like scribes, which he means scribe in the true sense, not the political party. But what the scribes were always supposed to do, and there's a quote from Sirach, which I wonder if Jesus is pulling from. It's from Sirach 39, and it says, according to the book of Sirach, a true scribe is the one who can penetrate the subtleties of parables and be at home with the obscurities of parables. Do you know that that in in that chapter of, uh, is that's in contrast to the craftsman? (laughs) Uh, it is. I didn't know that actually. Yeah, that, that, like that's the chapter Sorry. that is, that mentions metalwork and pottery the most out of anything. And 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 then it's always funny because at the core, mm. that's been this question in my heart for mm. me and my own existential, my own walk with God is I love the making of things. I will make kites and metal and wood and stone and all these things. Mm. But he says, but the scribe is the one who penetrates the subtleties of parables. Who can and who is comfortable in the obscurity? Uh, who is at home in the obscurities of parables? Right. Which tells me, it's like the situation we're living in. I have no idea how we get out of this. I don't know where our world or our country or our church is headed. But I'm not. Gonna, I, but I refuse to disengage. And so I will be at home we'll because. Be at- yeah. This is where I am. And I will be grateful for any moment where I discover the grace of God in the midst right. of this. Right. And and, right. and and I and then what will happen is that I will bring out that which is old, which right. is the process of what we're doing in the podcast. Right. In an right. attempt to discover that which is new in because right. in, like we've been yeah. saying week after week after week right now, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Rhymes, yeah. And so we're discovering the mm-hmm. rhyme and we're going through the long work of Psalm 119 of saying, like, hold on, right. where are we? We're digging in mm. and we're trying to just remain simple before this and in the complexities of how this is in this core of our heart yeah. to say like no I will I will choose I will covenant with you and I will make my singular agenda to be with you God and to shema you to shema you to listen and to obey yeah. and and so then we bring from the storeroom that which is old and that which is new and like like the truth is, is that I, over these years in this time, especially with you, Scott, is that I, I've found myself like way more at, at home and comfortable with the difficulties of these things because they just so are. And you have a tendency in, in, in my life to really show me the complexity of these things mm. and to honor the complexity of, of how things are. Cause, That's cause what the scribe does. The scribe honors, honors the complexity. Right. While yeah. trying to remain simple in front of it. Right. And to say like yeah. like I I still will remain humble, and uh and because mm. as soon as I believe that I am over it, then my temerity and my arrogance destroys me, and then all I want is mo mo mo, and makes me want to be the master of the obscurity right. and the mystery mm. rather than being humble to the mystery or the mm. complexity. Right, mm. that's the difference. Yes, can you exist and be at home within it, knowing that God is bigger? Right, or do we have to master it and control it? 
that's always the temptation. That's and, Solomon. That's our world. Right. That's where we're at. Right. That's me to you. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. Oh, you guys, thank you for joining us. That was a, that was illuminative. It was a big one. That like was. I said, these are some of the most theologically complex stitched together readings that I think we've had. Take that. Take that 17th Sunday in ordinary time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. God Pray bless for us. you. Bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.